haven't met me. My name's Stuart, and I'm not a pastor at this church, but I have pastored other churches. Some credentials for getting up here tonight, I guess. It's a fairly dark topic, isn't it? The unforgivable sin. That's why I've got a sort of a jokey thing on the board. I could have thought of some other ones. I I, I thought of long grass outside and uh, a husband going off to play golf and the mum just sort of looking at him. I thought of a kid's bedroom where you couldn't see the floor or the bed or anything, just clothes everywhere. But uh, that was a fairly good one. But it is a dark topic. Uh, Usually we speak about uh, joy and grace and forgiveness and we're going to talk about those things but um, the topic is a very serious one. There is a sin that is unforgivable and we read about it in Mark chapter 3. You might want to have your Bibles open there because we're going to follow it fairly closely. Mark chapter 3 and we're beginning at uh, verse 20. Let me read to you the uh, the bit that starts in uh, the unforgivable sin. Starts a bit later on. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. It might seem strange that Jesus says that because throughout his ministry, Jesus is forgiving people. Even in his last dying breath, he's forgiving the thief on the cross. Uh, Peter's ministry begins with him standing up at Pentecost and proclaiming forgiveness of sins to all those who repent. And Paul in his letters and John and the other writers mention forgiveness as one of the founding and key factors of the gospel. In the Old Testament, we meet a compassionate God who buries our sins in the depths of the sea. And one of the prophets says, who is a pardoning God like you? Well, the other gods didn't pardon, but this God does. So how does this verse tie in with all this? Well, let's have a look at it fairly closely. We're going to have an insight into two groups tonight. Uh, Two groups that are candidates for committing this unforgivable sin. Uh, One group are Jesus' family and the other group are Jesus' foes. Let's begin with his family. There's a nice family picture. It's a big family, isn't it, that one? What do they say? Let's have a look at chapter 3 and verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Your family said that to you recently? Mine do occasionally, (laughs) so I'm beginning to think that I am. But uh, for here Jesus is a young man, and they want to take him home. They want to control him. They mistake his passion and zeal for madness. And they mistake his sense of mission for a deranged mind. So their aim is to uh, take him home and uh, keep him under wraps. Even Mary's in on this. If you go down to the end of verse 31, you see that Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. So not only the the extended family, but the the very close family was there. And uh, Mary was thinking, well, we must take Jesus away from here. I think she had a sense of love and concern for her son. Uh, She just didn't want him getting hurt. And there may have been some kind of backlash in the community. Um, In those days, the synagogue was all important. It was the centre of the the, the town and the community. And to be uh, excommunicated from the synagogue uh, would have meant that uh, it affected you socially, religiously, politically, economically, all those sorts of things. 
So it was a big deal if, if people didn't like Jesus because it affected the rest of them as well. Basically, they misunderstood, didn't they, who Jesus was, even though they'd lived with him and they had known him fairly well. Is this the unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks about, thinking that Jesus is out of his mind? Well, we'll have to wait and see later on, find out about that. What the text does tell us, however, is that it's often friends and family who misunderstand our passion for God. You know, you can be one of those children who excels in swimming and your parents will go out of their way to get you up at 4 o'clock in the morning, take you to training and, and do all those things for you. You might be an athlete. You could be a, a footy player and uh, you're, you're progressing and so your dad will take you to training three days a week. Uh, you might be a footy fanatic and you buy all the gear and you go to all the games and your family thinks that's a, that's a good idea. It might be that you uh, have a family that's keen on you being successful and so they guide you into this sort of uh, area in which you're supposed to go and they look at you and say, we want you to be in excess in this area. So early morning, late nights, work hard and in the end you'll be able to support your family well. And we applaud people like this. But let someone be passionate about their faith. Let someone be a decided Christian. Let someone give up worldly success and go into gospel ministry and they're labelled a fanatic or a fool. Maybe you live in this kind of misunderstanding in your own life. Maybe someone has uh, looked at you and thought, you're far too religious. Well, if they've said that, that's good, because you're in good company. That's what they thought of Jesus. His own family thought he was too religious. So you're in very good company there. Well, let's look at the second focus and probably spend a little bit more time on this one. That's Jesus' foes, his enemies. What's their assessment of Jesus? If his family were motivated by love to take him away, just to hide him away for a little while, uh, these people can't conceal their utter contempt and open hostility for Christ. Uh, have a look at verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. They didn't come with an open mind, did they? I think Mark goes out of his way to say they came down. Now, physically, it's a drop from Jerusalem down to Galilee. That's quite a drop. But I think Mark's saying more than that. He's saying they came down with all the weight of the law, all the weight of their knowledge and instruction, and they came down to tell this local yokel that he didn't know anything. He hadn't been to the great rabbinical schools that they'd been to. He wasn't qualified to speak on matters like this. So they came to pass judgment. They weren't going to investigate. They weren't going to debate. They were just here to condemn and to confront and to correct. And they were going to make a great show in doing it. They said he's possessed by bills above, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now, some of the other Gospels uh, mention uh, this little section as well, but they, they add things to it. So it's interesting when you look at the comparison to see how it all uh, adds up. Uh, one of the Gospels says that they arrive, these scribes arrive from Jerusalem just as Jesus has healed a man who's been possessed by an evil spirit and is also uh, mute and deaf. They can't speak, can't hear. It's in a terrible situation and Jesus casts out the demon, heals the man, brings him back to his right state of mind and in response to that miracle the people are saying, is this the son of David? Is this finally the long-awaited Messiah? 
It's a great question to ask if you've seen the miracles that Jesus performed. But the scribes aren't interested in that. They're not listening. They're not amazed like the crowd. They declared Jesus to be an instrument of Satan. His family thought he was a bit dodgy. These guys think he's possessed by evil itself. The very essence of evil is in Jesus. They're not saying that he uses Satan to cast out demons and that he sort of calls on Satan and Satan does it. They're saying Satan is in him to cast out the demons. Here he's referred to Satan as Beelzebub. comes from the old Canaanite religion where they worship the god Baal and uh, literally it means Lord of the Dunghill, Lord of the Poo. Now, I don't know if you've read the book Lord of the Flies. Anyone read Lord of the Flies? It's a good, good book. I see a hand there. Great book. William Golden wrote it some years ago about some boys who went to, on an island. They, somehow their plane crashed and they ended up on this island. And uh, they were lovely little schoolboys. I think they were choir boys. I think that was it in the original um, book. And uh, on the island, uh, they started to have rules and regulations, but suddenly they found that uh, things got worse. The innate evil in them came to the surface. And then they were running around killing each other before the sort of like the civilization came back to the island and they were rescued. But uh, William Golden called it Lord of the Flies because he got it from this idea of Lord of the Dunghill and the idea that Beelzebub, Satan, uh, can work in people and change their lives in dramatic ways like this. These scribes are saying that Jesus draws on Satan's power and is possessed by him, and he's the total opposite of what Jesus claims to be and what others think of Jesus. Rather than demonstrating the power of a loving God, he's demonstrating the power of Satan. So when people say you're possessed by Satan, what do you do? Well, you come back at them a little bit, and Jesus does that by telling two parables, very short ones, and he begins with a challenge. Have a look at verse 23. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Ah, that's a good question, isn't it? You can't. That's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan want to work against himself? So Jesus continues with a parable. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Now, we know from other parts in the Bible that uh, Satan is given the title as a, of a ruler of a kingdom. Uh, he's called the ruler of the kingdom of this age, uh, the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. His spirit works in the hearts and minds of those who are disobedient. Uh, humanity doesn't realise it, but they are governed by Satan. His people are under his dominion. Whether they ignore him, whether they revolt against him and disobey his rules willingly, they are still under the rule of Satan. They are Satan's puppets. Satan is the ruler over a kingdom, just that they don't realise it. And then Jesus uses a second little picture here where Satan is the owner of a house. He says if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that since Satan is interested in raw power and a house divided against itself will self-destruct, See what Jesus is saying? Is it likely that Satan's going to act like this when the effects that Jesus uh, brings forth are life-changing? How could Satan be in Jesus if Jesus heals people and releases them from Satan's grip and, and gives them a, a, a new start and a new life? He goes on, verse 26, 
And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. He's destroying himself. If Satan is the owner of the house, he rules the hearts and the minds of the people in the house. He owns the culture. He owns the values, the priorities and the interests of the house. And this is not just a house that Jesus is talking about. This is our world. This is our community in which we live. Satan is himself the strong man, we're told here. And he stands behind the workers of darkness. Uh, as in our first reading, Paul puts it this way, as we have a look at that. Uh, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's talking to Christians here. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Christians see the world as it is. They see that there are dark forces behind the sorts of things that we see going on. We're about to elect some politicians. We know that big heads of corporations can sway things, even in politics. We know that celebrities, when they open their mouth, can sway people when they talk, even if they've only ever had 15 minutes of fame. And we know that uh, those who own the media can change the course of the way we think. But they're not the wheels behind the wheels. They're just the wheels turning. Behind that, and sometimes people refer to this, especially in movies, as the deep state. And you'll see movies about the CIA or MI5 or someone else. Someone else is actually running the show and even the president doesn't know and the, so the prime minister doesn't know what's going on. Uh, that's for those who have sort of these conspiracy theories. But for Christians, there is a real deep, dark state and it's controlled by Satan. And uh, this world is Satan's house. And Jesus describes himself in these verses as the intruder. He, he comes into this house where the, where the strong man is. And uh, he comes to defeat him. Luke uh, adds a bit more to that uh, passage that we just read. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So here's Jesus coming to overpower the strong man. He enters the strong man's house. He's disturbed the power of the ruler of this age by his incarnation, by coming into our world and by doing the things that he did. He's ripping apart the power that Satan had over us. He demonstrates his power over sickness and evil and death and he'll do even more so by his own death and resurrection. See, Jesus has come into the world to bind Satan. It's the same word bind that uh, John picks up when he writes the book of Revelation where he sees uh, this great vision of what's going to happen in the future. And this is chapter 20 where it's coming to a, a finality, coming to an end. He says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the keys of the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil of Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Thousand years here is a round number. It describes that church age from when Jesus founded it till the end times when Jesus comes back. And during that time, Satan is bound. 
you might be thinking here, well, he doesn't look very bound. Now I look at the world around me and I see atrocities. I see Christians being persecuted. Every day it seems in the news there's another church being blown up and Christians killed and people vilified for their Christian beliefs and told that they don't know anything. But the text says here, doesn't it? It says that Satan has been bound. But notice what also it does say. He's bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations. Now, who are the nations? They're not the Jews, are they? The nations are the Gentiles, those who are outside of uh, that covenant that God had with his own people. So the nations are there for a thousand years for this time of the church age, so that the gospel can go out. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, go forth and spread the good news and take it to the ends of the earth, take it to the nations. So Satan is bound during this time so that the good news can continue to go out and we can be part of that. Now, I'm not going to speak about the book of Revelation tonight. I wish I could, but I'll, I'll give you an insight into the end of how, how it all finishes up. Uh, if we read on we'd find that uh, it says here, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations. After the thousand years, he gets another go at the nations who have heard the word of God and it's going to be a testing time, isn't it, for those who have heard and whether they're going to recant or whether they're going to continue strong. Uh, And he'll uh, deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for a battle. Okay. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. That's interesting, isn't it? Because um, uh, God's people have been described like that back in, in Genesis, weren't they, as part of the covenant. And here it's the enemies of God are, part, are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. This is the Battle of Armageddon that they're talking about. now. Last year I had the privilege of standing in that valley of Armageddon. It's a very wide valley. And I can imagine a great big army marching through it and and hearing the the thump, thump, thump of the soldiers as they marched. And God's people are surrounded. And you think to yourself, how is God going to get out of this? It's going to be an incredible battle taking place. But we read on and this is what it says. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. (laughs) Satan thinks he's going to win and suddenly, just like Elijah and and the, uh, the, the... the meat on the barbecue on Mount Carmel. Fire comes down and that's it, they're gone. It reminds me of uh, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you remember the scene in that where there's a guy? uh, I'll put you in the picture. Um, Indiana Jones has been running through town fighting people like he usually does and I think there's been a couple of guys with whips chasing him and eventually beats them and he finally he's looking for this girl, I think, and there's a big crowd and suddenly the crowd parts and there's this, this Arabian dude standing here with all, all the gear on. And he's got this massive sword that he's waving around. He's going to have this great fight. And Indiana Jones goes, oh, gets out his gun, goes bang, <laughs> and shoots him. Now, I was, I was researching this, and I actually found out that um, this is an aside, uh, that that wasn't supposed to happen in the movie. He was supposed to have a sword fight. That guy had been training for months to have this battle, but... The crew and the cast all got sick and we had the flu and they only had two more days to shoot in Tunisia and so they had to do something else and so they put that scene into the film. Bang, he did. It's a great scene. 
I guess a lot of the good things in movies are either ad-libs or um, things that have gone wrong. But back to the text. Well, Jesus has uh, certainly come into the strong man's house, hasn't he? And he's bound him. And you are living evidence that Satan has been bound. You wouldn't be here tonight if Satan wasn't bound. You'd be out there doing something else. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be bothered meeting with Christians and uh, sitting under God's word. Then uh, Jesus gives them a warning. Let's have a look at it again. Verse 28. It's a pretty strong one, isn't it? Truly I tell you, he gets their attention. He says that a couple of times in the Gospels. Pay attention, listen. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. It's one serious warning, isn't it? We need to understand it because people really get hurt over this. I've, I've had people come to me when I was pastoring a church and they'd say, look, I, I, I want to get a divorce. Is that the unforgivable sin? Or I've committed adultery. Is that the unforgivable sin? For some, suicide is the unforgivable sin. And nowadays I think the community would say pedophilia might be like that. In the days of Hitler it would have been genocide was the unforgivable sin. Is that what Jesus is speaking about here? Is it a sin that's so shocking that you can't be forgiven for? Well, let's look at it very carefully, and I want to start by giving you a warning about what it's not saying. There are two common errors when it comes to thinking about life after death. The first one is universalism. That is, everybody in the end will make it. It's a nice feeling, that, isn't it? You know, Christians will get there, but if you weren't a Christian, you've got a second chance Maybe you could pay your way off through purgatory or you could do some other things. Uh, so this Christian karma combination of going through the various lives until you pop out at the top. The verse doesn't say that, does it? Then the other view is what's called annihilation. That is, Christians go to heaven and everyone else rots in the grave. That's where they go. So eternity for Christians, nothing for, for those who aren't Christians. But again, the verse doesn't say that. The verse assumes that everyone goes into the afterlife, into the age to come, either in a state of forgiveness or in a state of unrelenting guilt. So Jesus gets our attention. He presupposes again that we will sin and we will blaspheme. Every time we say, oh my God, we blaspheme. Every time we say, for God's sake, we blaspheme. You ever have to go to court and you put your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, and then you don't, you blaspheme. If you sing a song in church and you don't really mean it because your heart's not in it, you blaspheme. And there are lots of other ways that we can blaspheme. And Jesus says here, you can be forgiven for those things. Confess your sins, you're forgiven. But there is a sin that is unforgivable. Well, let's work it out. Jesus has been performing miracles in the power of the Spirit. Luke records in his gospel, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, says Jesus, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here's the Trinity in the Gospels. Jesus casts out demons to bring the kingdom of God into reality through the power of the Spirit. And these scribes who have come down from Jerusalem are saying, 
Jesus is actually performing his miracles through Satan's power. It's saying to the Holy Spirit, you're not grace-filled, you are evil, and you're trying to destroy. That is the unforgivable sin. Well, you look at the very goodness of God and you call it evil. You see, you can reject Jesus and you may have been doing so up until now. The religious leaders were doing that. But if you go that one step further and say, God, you're evil, and we're tempted to do that, aren't we? We look at the world around us and we see the atrocities happening and we say, God, I don't understand why these things are happening. And then some people will go that next step and say, well, God, I actually think you're, um, you've got a mind that wants to hurt and wants to, to maim and I, I think you're an evil God. The passage here is saying don't go there because there is no escape if we do that. Christian believers often get tied up in knots about this, uh, about this unforgivable sin, and they wonder if they've committed it. Well, if you're anxious about it, that's, that's a great reassurance because that's the Holy Spirit prompting you to say you haven't done it. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be anxious about it if the Holy Spirit wasn't prompting you in the first place. So you haven't committed that unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin, as I said, is where you look at Jesus and say he's evil. You see him as being so utterly evil that you've got no desire for him. You've got no time for him. You've got no love for him. You've got no faith in him. If that's the case, there's no salvation. Have you ever been online with someone where you've um, uh, said something Christian and someone's attacked you and you've tried to talk to them uh, say some nice things, and they just come down and said, I don't want to listen, uh, what you're saying is rubbish, I don't want to debate you, you're out of touch, you're out of tune, get a life, don't, don't talk to me again. That's the sort of thing that's taking place in this passage with these scribes. They went back to Jerusalem <coughs> thinking that they condemned Jesus and sort of put him away. And Jesus is saying to them, you've condemned yourselves. Don't sin against the Holy Spirit because once you've done that, you can't be forgiven. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But there's a little bit of hope here at the end of this passage. Let's have a go at verse 31 and read the end here. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. and They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's what God wants from us, doesn't it? Sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning and seeking to do his will. Of course we're going to fail. But the great news of the gospel is we're forgiven. We only have to ask when we're forgiven. But don't go to that place like the scribes who say about Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. Of course, if you arrive at that place, there is no forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we are forgiven. We thank you that you called us to know you. And we pray for those who have hardened hearts. We pray for our friends and family Please may they not be in that position where they've pushed you out completely. Please help us keep on taking the gospel to the nations. 
and please help us see uh, you working in the hearts of people to bring them into your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Karen Connect cards, here they are. Even know what these are? If you don't, uh, time to write down a little bit about uh, your name and uh, if you'd like to get an email from us about the newsletter, uh, any questions you might have or a comment you'd like to make or something you'd like to pass on to the pastoral care team or to Stuart and the staff, I'll give you a couple of seconds to write that down and then we'll end up with our last song.